Present Tense Podcast. Welcome to Episode 9 of the Present Tense series, The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places. I'm Anne Markham-Bailey, the host and producer of Present Tense. In this episode, we hear from Larry Smith, who spent his youth roaming the Bankhead National Forest. Smith was recruited by Ricky Butch Walker to assist in the pre-press production of the Bankhead Monitor. He also trained with Charles Kennedy, a key spiritual guide of the Bankhead movement. He is a musician, an entrepreneur, a writer, and a blogger. Larry holds a B.S. in public relations from the University of North Alabama in Florence. Please remember to subscribe to Present Tense and to rate our show. It will help other listeners find us. And now, to the episode. Ninety-one. I think that I came on the scene ninety-one or ninety-two or something like that. Mm-hmm. I was doing some work for Butch Walker for the school system, and he found out that I knew how to uh, do page layout for publications or magazines and stuff like that. And uh, and he he uh, asked me to help lay out his first book, which was the Warrior Mountain Folklore book. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, so if you have if you have an original copy, you'll find a credit for me in the, the original one, but it's been reprinted a few times, I think. And uh, the original, the binder wasn't very good, and it came the pages came loose and stuff. But uh, I was helping out Butch, and uh, he gave me a job. I was you know I didn't I had just I was uh, had gone back to college as uh, in my thirties and. Uh, I was just about to get out of college, and I didn't have a job, and he gave me a job with the school system, and it was actually at my school system job that I finished laying out the Warrior Mountain Folklore book. And one day uh, at my house, uh, Butch brought Lamar Marshall over to my house to see this uh, software, which is like a, it was Adobe PageMaker, to see PageMaker software, you know, and then this is what you can do, you know, if you have a computer. And so he, they looked at it, and I met Lamar, and it wasn't very long before they invited me to go out to Lamar's house, which he lived out, I guess, at the edge of Bankhead in the Speak area, Speak community, and uh, had some land out there. And I went out there, and at the time, he was doing the Bankhead monitor uh, photocopy version. And so I went out to Lamar's, and we talked and everything, and uh, he decided that he wanted to try doing it in PageMaker page layout. So I began to be the page layout person for the Bankhead Monitor at that time. And I'm not sure how many issues I did. I mean, I looked at the first two. I didn't. I don't know if I have a credit in all these, but I'm pretty sure, I mean, I did them all the way from the beginning till, till Wild Alabama. And then, you know, after that, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, Talladega, Talladega Monitor, Wild Alabama did them all the way till then, and then after that, you know, my life changed and I stopped. But I was around uh, a lot of what was going on during that time. Did you already have a relationship with the forest? Oh yes. Uh, Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, my uh, dad and my uncle Wendell were—they uh, worked in the CCC program. And so they were involved in developing some of the recreational areas in Bankhead and probably other places too. And so they knew uh, a good deal about 
Bankhead Forest and places that they like to go. And so our family often went on outings out there. I was remembering, just earlier today, I was remembering uh, a picnic that I went out on with my grandparents. And we went out to the big tree. And uh, back then, you could go and you could walk from a park at a logging road, and you could walk directly out there. I don't think it was quite the hike that it is now to get out there. But we went out to the big tree, and we had this picnic, and the water was... Uh, so clean that you could drink that water. And so I'm thinking I was six or seven years old. You could drink that water, and we forgot to take drinking cups with us. But my grandmother knew how to take these leaves, like big elephant ear leaves, and fold those leaves into a cup. And she made these cups for us, and we drank from the water, uh, from the falls there and everything. And that, that's a, one of my memories of going out there. Family, friends, the, the Kennedys, Charles Kennedy, whose name might come up in this at some point. We were friends since the age of three, and his family practically lived in Bankhead during the, during the camping season, and we stayed out there with them a lot. So yes, my whole life, I mean, I could just go through the, my, all of my days and, and probably have remembrances, you know, of going out to everywhere, Kenlock, to uh, Brushy Lake. Yeah. So Lawrence County High School, uh, we had a prom, and I didn't go to the prom, but a, a most of us seniors wanted to go out to Brushy Lake after we graduated, and we went out there and spent the night and built a big old bonfire, and you know, because that's what we like to do. Did you swim in the lake? We did back then. Yeah. There were leeches, but yeah, back then we could swim in the lake. Yeah. That's where I learned to swim. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. So you just pulled the leeches off. But yeah, it was it was really nice, and it still is. You're nice, though, though not. It's not being cared for uh, as good as it used to be. I don't think. Can you say more about that? Well, yes, because my wife and I we frequently go uh, out into to Bankhead, and we go everywhere that we can get. You know. Uh, being a little older, you know, we don't do really rough hikes or anything, but uh, we hit all the recreational areas and easy hikes and stuff like that. And I'm just, honestly, the recreational areas are not being tended very well. Uh, Brushy Lake, better than some, but if you go down to where the dam is at Brushy Lake and you cross over and get on the trail there, you know, uh, past the dam, and all that, then, uh, you know, there's, I know they don't have the manpower and money probably to do it, but sometimes it's hard to get down those trails. Uh, Sipsy, the Sipsy uh, recreation area down there, that place, uh, it badly needs tending. Uh, they do it about once a year probably, and then after that they don't. And uh, we were not happy. I complained, it's been about a year ago, because of uh, trash you know, that was out there that, you know, no one had picked up. We went out there and we were picking up trash on the trail out there because it didn't look like it had been tended for a while. Uh, another one is the Houston Recreation Area. And I don't know if uh, if you've been there in a while or anything, but going out to that one, you know, they got a nice trail and there's some beautiful places on that trail. But if you go from the recreation area and walk down there, then no one has really tended that trail and, you know, well, we were there a few months ago, and it looked like no one had tended that trail forever. Uh, we couldn't comfortably you know, go very far down the trail because of uh, logs that were, had fallen across the trail and because of uh, uh, you know, fleas and stuff like that. I don't know, you know how, you, how you'd get rid of those, but uh, it wasn't a very comfortable walk anymore, and we have walked down there, and it was just so very beautiful. One of the questions that seems kind of like an, an odd question maybe, but is I kind of want listeners to be able to hear from people who really know the forest and have lived it and loved it. So that's the origin of this question, like how is the Sipsi and, and Bankhead, how's it different from other places? Like what... What makes it a sacred place from your uh, experience? 
it's sacred in a lot of aspects, but uh, what makes it different, I think, compared to other places is the, the diversity of plant life and of insect life and possibly of animal life there, but just the diversity of the plant life is incredible. But it's intimate, it's approachable, it's close. Uh, if you go to the Grand Canyon, you know, it's really beautiful and you can see it and it's big, it's vast, but you can't really get close to it. It's hard to to get really close to it. You can go down in it, but it's still massive, you know, and it's bigger than you are. You can go out here, man, and you can get right up against it. Uh, the forest is so approachable, and I think it's spiritual uh, from the standpoint that uh, because of the closeness, the intimacy that you have when you go out there, then you can connect to to nature, to the plant life, to the animal life. Uh, everything seems to have a rhythm out there. Uh, when we go out there, you can go out there and just sit and be still, and you see the the bees and the the hummingbirds and you know the different insects flying around and stuff like that and there almost seems like it's timed it almost seems like a rhythm there's a unity to it that uh, we have forgotten and uh, I think that um, it's important for everyone to try to reconnect with that you know we're uh, we keep our face in a computer screen all day we're looking at our phones, we're in our cars, it's concrete and steel is all around us. We're watching TV and you can watch you can watch a TV show about a forest, but it's not the same thing as being out there because you're getting the energy of that place when you go out there. You're connecting with uh, with the creator when you go out there. Uh, uh, the interference of man, you know, hasn't made a a negative impact when you go out there. And so when you go out there, it's like connecting to what you're supposed to be, what we were intended to be, the natural person that we were intended to be, not the person that we've made ourselves somehow through technology and through civilization and culture. Like I read recently that, that our genetic material is like very similar to trees. Which begs the question of, you know, like we are of the same stuff. So we are, and uh, and I think you get out of it uh, what is in your heart when you go out there too. I mean, uh, I know that if you go out there in peace, that you can find peace out there. If you go out there, if you go out there with an attitude of bringing hope, you know, like you guys are talking about saving the wildlands and all that, you know, and so if you go out there with the attitude of hope, then I think that the that connection that you make when you come out of there, then you will have hope. As an older person uh, nearing retirement, it is very hard for me after years and years of working to be able to chill to be able to relax, to be able to to find peace because there's always something uh, about my day, my job, my responsibilities, who I'm accountable for that's rolling around in my mind and everything like that. And when you go out in the woods, you realize that all those things, you know, really don't amount to a whole lot. All that worry doesn't amount to a whole lot. Uh, it doesn't work that way out there. And... Uh, so you know, so anyone can find peace out there if they go out there looking for peace and if they go out there taking an attitude of peace with them. As a, as a younger person, probably as a teenager and probably as a child, uh, one memory that I have is seeing the endless logging trucks coming down that highway, down Highway 33. I lived on the other side of town down 33. And I'm not sure where they were going. I don't know if the paper mill was there, what destination they were going to at the time, but it was endless. It, was, it seemed like as a child that there were just logging truck after logging truck. 
And sometimes when we went out there, we could see the evidence, you know, of uh, clear cutting. And we certainly saw a lot of logging activity, you know, out there growing up. And uh, also, but not just there, I grew up on a farm, 120-acre farm, and the logging companies were trying to buy the land around the farm, too. And there were some clear cuts, you know, uh, on other farms around our farm. We never did sell out and let them do that, but they were just ugly. And uh, so that was, I think that was when I became aware that something was wrong happening. That Endless hunger yeah, industry. Yeah, that was happening <laughs> that was wrong out there. But uh, then when I began to work with Lamar on the Bankhead Monitor and that project, then I started uh, really, uh, it opened my eyes to, to the, the problems, the issues. How'd you meet Lamar? Well, uh, Butch Walker, uh, who I was working for at Lawrence County Schools, doing page layout for his book, brought Lamar over to my house to introduce Lamar to me because I was good at using computers and you had to use the page layout software. So uh, Butch brought Lamar over and introduced me to him. But yeah, so I met Lamar then and uh, and spent a lot of time with Lamar and uh you know, one of your questions on here, I'm probably getting, getting ahead of you, but if we're okay. talking about those guys, you're talking about the essence of the, of the Bankhead eco-warriors and all that. And I was thinking about Lamar and thinking about some of these other people. And I think that what impressed me most was the humility of, of Lamar Marshall and of, of the, these other people too. They were humble and they were sincere. Uh, I don't think there was, Lamar Marshall had a bone in his body that was uh, uh, selfish. He wasn't doing this to promote himself or to make a name for himself. I don't think he was doing it because uh, that he was on some kind of a, a political campaign. You know that he you know a self. Uh, initiated political campaign. I think that he did it because of his sincere love and because he grieved uh, at what he saw happening out in the bankhead. And and that's what the eco-warriors, they seem like to me. They were humble, they were sincere, but at the same time they were like fierce fighters. You know, they were willing to speak out and willing to stand up. They didn't care about public opinion necessarily. They were just special in that way hard workers that that was to me that was the essence of them I was always more of a support person you know behind the scenes but I was very felt very blessed very privileged to be part of of that effort and it always amazed me uh, at how important that other people outside of that effort saw what we were doing. I can remember, uh, for example, I was uh, had returned to uh, UNA in my 30s and was trying to finish up there in a, with a public relations degree. And my uh, the head of the department was Dr. Eugene Bailoff, and he found out that I was doing this work with the Bankhead Monitor. And you know, I would go in his office almost every day. He wanted to know what was going on. You know, he had heard about it. He knew who everybody was. Uh, he he supported it. You know, he cheered everyone on in that effort, and uh, and but just amazed me. You know that uh, so many people knew about it. Uh, later on, uh, I did a project when I was at UNA, and I got Lamar to help me. And uh, I was looking for a project that was related to ecology, to the environment, or to the issues that was, were going on in the Bankhead Forest. And you know that big clear-cut book out there mm -hmm. about uh, industrial forestry and you know the destruction of industrial forestry? Uh, Lamar gave me a copy of this, this book that was put out by the Sierra Club Press about the destruction being caused by industrial forestry and it was offering some possible solutions. And uh, I decided to make that a project when I was a senior at UNA 
And Lamar was able to hook me up with some of the people, with the editor of that book, plus some of the writers that wrote those articles in that book. I mean, he knew those guys. They knew who he was. And he set up interviews for me, and I called them and, you know, and got an, had an awesome, you know, project there with that. But it made me realize that, uh, that this was bigger than Bankhead Forest, and it was bigger than the Southeast, and it was bigger than North America. It was international, uh, happening everywhere, and it was a huge threat uh, to, to our very existence because that's, uh, that's the air we breathe. That's our ecosystem. Without it being healthy, we don't survive. The modern world tries to convince us that, you know, we're more comfortable in our Lazy Boys and at a shopping mall. And, but there's something about the wild that, that feeds us in a different way. Can you talk about your experience or your thoughts about that? Oh, there it is. Yeah, there's the book. Yeah, that, that's the very, the very book. Um, well, and I think it's like just looking at that. There's, and you said this earlier that there's something about seeing a clear cut that hurts. Yes, it's it it's, takes your breath away. It's stark, you know. It's it's ugly. It's really ugly. Um, and I think that's something about the wild that is in that we're made of that's speaking. Uh, yeah, I think we, you know, talking about how. It feeds us. Um, I think it does it on a, you know a lot of different levels. Uh, it gives us a chance to uh, to see beauty as it was intended to be. Um, you know, for for me, for myself, uh, it's a place where I can find peace and rest. Uh, there's something that I can identify with out there that I want to connect with more and more and more that I do want to get fed by. It's uh, uh, no matter what anybody's body's concept of God is, you know, religion or anything like that, there's something out there that makes everything work, that drives everything that's greater than you or me or our thoughts and that, that's beyond the comprehension of any human being, and I, I think that uh, that's the source of uh, of art, of literature, of poetry, you know, everything that's lasting. You know, everything that man creates is lasting. You know, I think that it comes out of this source, and I think that we have forgotten how to connect to that, and we have. We think too much of ourselves and our own abilities and our own intellect and our knowledge and our skill. We think way too much of it. Uh, you know, uh, bees and ants, they're very skilled, I guess, at what they do, but they don't really have a lot of training. You know, they're just born that way. I, I'm not, I don't think, uh, I don't really know because we don't know, but. Uh, or maybe we do know, I'm not sure, but I don't know if a bee goes through a training course or if an ant you know, learns, goes through a training course about how to, uh, to make the anthill or the bee make the hive you know, and stuff like that. I mean, they do all of that stuff and it's perfect and it sustains them perfectly and it's all they need. But we try to analyze everything and we try to micromanage everything and we want to put our, our stamp, our name on everything, uh, rather than just be part of something that, and connect to something that's bigger than we are. So for me, that's the way the woods feed me out there, is it, you know, it humbles me, it makes me realize that, that, it's, uh, that life and uh, existence and nature is much greater than my ability to analyze it and think it out. And I hope that uh, in my life, being older, that I can learn to let go more and just try to be one with it and be part of it because it does, it does feed anyone who goes out there and, and 
tries to get that. You know, uh, nature wants to, uh, it, we're part of it, and it wants us to become unified with it. It wants us to go out there and to let everything go and to allow ourselves to be wild again. And I, I believe that's where, like, true peace really is, is letting everything go and just blending in, you know, and becoming part of, uh, of everything around us rather than trying to be self-contained and, and trying to be an individual cut off from everything. We can, we can change. You know, we can change the, uh, the way our, our mind works and the reliance we have on ourselves. You know, I, all the time, I, I've gone through life uh, in my 60s feeling like I was out of control of everything. You know, like uh, even though I have a good life and, you know, a good job and all this, but it, there's never any moment that I feel in control. The whole thing could tumble down and, you know, it, you know, I could fall down at any time and be, you know, out there homeless or whatever, you know, or something like that. Out in the wild, out in nature, uh, survival is a concern, I'm sure, for everything in nature. But I don't think that stress, there's not any stress out there. You know, we, we think that we're above, you know, we're higher than everything. And, and I don't even know of any, I don't really know of any religion that teaches that. I think it's just a misconception or a misinterpretation if anyone ever thinks that. And I think, to me, it's wonderful to be able to identify back with that. You know, in the Bible, in Romans chapter 1, it says, you know, that, uh, that the evidence of God is in, is in nature, is in everything in the universe, but we fail to recognize it and acknowledge it. And, you know, and I think that's just very, very so true that we don't. Everything out there, everything, whether it's living or whether it seems to not be living to us, it has a spirit of some kind. You know, it has a, there's an energy, I guess, about it is what I would call it. You know, everything's got that, and we got it, and we're not any different than anything out there. Whether it be a rock or a tree, we all have a right to, to live and to be happy and to be fulfilled and to, to be able to live out our lifespan and, and accomplish what, what, what was meant for us to accomplish. Everything has its place. Uh, you know, without a healthy ecosystem, then we were, we're not going to survive, I don't think. What are we going to do? You know, if, it all, if all that falls down and we don't have it, uh, how long would we last, even with all of our, uh, in, our knowledge? You know, we'd have to try to go to another planet or something, you know, and have another chance to ravage another planet. But it's probably not likely to happen in my lifetime. It also just seems to me like it's such a different way to live when you really care about and love things. Like instead of saying, oh, who cares about those fish? Yeah. But rather, if you relate to the everything, like when you were talking about everything has some kind of energy or spirit, and you live from that point of view, it's such a different life. It's a, mm. it's you're just constantly, ha you know, you're you are recognizing, and that spirit is alive in you. Yeah. And as you move along, you're like have all of this relationship. You're, you're in mm -hmm. deep relationship, which is deeply satisfying. It it, it is, and uh, we we need to. Uh, show that way to, to other people, to, to teach people that, you know, as well, to uh, help people to connect, to respect, uh, to respect nature, to respect uh, anything that you don't understand or anything, uh, not to try to dominate or to conquer something. And that's to, the main problem, and that's, domination. Yeah. But just being respectful. Uh, I don't know. It just seems like that, you know, now, you know, we've gotten just way far away from that. You know, it's not even, not even close. But I will say this. There's a lot of people uh, going out 
into the woods and out into Bankhead, into the other people, other areas around here. I know we know a lot of people that are that never did it before, you know, and who now are are out exploring and they're out hiking and they're taking pictures and they want to take pictures of the waterfalls and hopefully they'll, you know, hopefully they'll respect that and take care of it. But there's lots of people going out there, and it makes gives me hope that everyone is getting fed when they go out there, like you said, that they're getting fed when they go out there and that it'll, it'll help us and make us change you know, for the better. And wasn't yeah. that the strategy um, when y'all started working on the Bankhead Monitor was to bring people together at yeah. a different yeah. types of people Yes. who had a shared love for being out, out of doors. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, and that makes me think of the Native American population, and you know, here around here. And I think that uh, now I may be wrong, Janice. If you if you think I am, because I don't want her, she may broadcast something. I'll be completely wrong. But this is just my observation. Growing up, is that uh, people tried to, uh, uh, if you had a Native American heritage, then you really didn't talk about it that much, and you really weren't that proud of it. And when this effort began, probably side by side with this, but an effort also began to be made, though, to try to uh, uh, to help people to uh, get in touch with their heritage more so, whether it be Native American or whether it be just like my family. My family came from the Carolinas. They came from England and Ireland. They came down through the Carolinas into Georgia. They came in the Bankhead Forest and they were out there and then they came on down here in Moulton, you know, and started farming. And, you know, so our roots are out there and especially these Native Americans. So, but back in that time, the Bankhead Monitor time, uh, Butch Walker, Bobby Gillespie, some of those guys began making an effort to, uh, to put Native Americans in touch with our heritage and to put them in touch with, uh, with those woods again, to uh, help them to, to get to know about it, to get to know about the issues. It reminds me of Indian Team Hollow. And you've probably heard this story a few times, but uh, Charles Kennedy, talking about him. Uh, I introduced Charles Kennedy to Bobby Gillespie. Charles lived in Texas, and we were friends since we were the age of three. and. Uh, so Charles visited me frequently, and I introduced him to Bobby Gillespie. And it wasn't very long after that that, that uh, Bobby had Charles come down to do sweat lodge ceremonies out at Indian Team Hollow. How important Bankhead Forest was to people who were of Native American descendant, the, uh, descendants here. That changed everything and started bringing people together, just like you were saying. What was going on here with the Bankhead Monitor brought... Uh, it brought people together that started uh, rooting for the cause. It, it brought attention to the other side of it, which was the Forest Service side. And all that. I think that before the Bankhead Monitor, before the Native American stuff with Butch Walker and Charles Kennedy coming out, I don't think that we knew anything about that, that stuff. You know, we had Bankhead out there and we went out to, and camped out at Brushy Lake and we might have went out to some of the other places and our families went out there and we knew about it, but we were not aware of how important the, those issues was and how important it was that, that the forest was being devastated and that bad stuff was going on out there and how important it was for us to take a stand, to try to learn how, to try to get a feel for what it meant to us. What, did, what does the Bankhead Forest mean to me in my life? Well. You know, my ancestors on both sides came through the forest and they lived out there. And my dad and my uncle worked for CCC and they helped build that stuff like the dam out at Brushy and all that. I don't want to see anything bad happen to that. Uh, it means something to me because it's uh, in every way part of my heritage. And having that understanding makes me you know, care about it uh, more so enough to, to want to to be interested in it and to want to take a stand some way. Whereas growing up and before all this started, I think that we lived life and we just didn't think that much about it. You know, we just, Bankhead Forest was out there and it was beautiful and we liked it. I did not have a sense of being a caretaker.
for that. So do you think do you think that you had a sense that that government was trustworthy? <laughs> Um, now you're talking to a person that was well, I mean, uh, I, that that grew like up in the '60s and the '70s. <laughs> no, no, no government was not so, trustworthy. So, but did, uh, do you think that this fight changed that for you, or did, were you always uh, the person who thought? Because I think I used to have a sense that the government, you know, you didn't question authority, and then it turns out, wow, you got to stand on your own two feet, which it seems like that's. What happened with a lot of people in the forest? Um, what you were just talking about, like saying, "I we had to, we had to to make say no, you can't keep doing this." Yeah, I, I think that uh, definitely that it was uh, that someone needed to question the authority of the government out there. I think that uh, I do not think. That the Forest Service and like uh, Ranger Ramey, Mr. Ramey, and the, who was in the newspaper a lot and sometimes sparring with the Lamar Marshall and, oh, yeah. and all that. I don't think Mr. Ramey was a bad person, and I don't think those workers, you know, that worked out there in the Forest Service were bad people. I think they were trying to follow regulations, and I think that, uh, and you know, they were trying to uh, to do their job. But however, however, at the same time, I think that other interests like uh, perhaps companies that uh, made money from the logging and stuff like that. I think these other interests had too much of a say in what was uh, permitted out there. Probably, uh, I think that, the, uh, that these other interests probably wanted to keep the Bankhead Forest from being recognized and protected and preserved as long as they could to see what they could get out of it before that happened. And they got a lot out of it. And I think that it was very timely, just in the nick of time, that, uh, that Lamar and all these guys came along and started with that effort. It was just in the nick of time. Because I think if, uh, if it hadn't happened when it did, then I think a whole lot more of virgin forest and a whole lot more natural, beautiful natural places would just be gone now. And it takes so long to get those back. You know, we will never get those back. Uh, yes, important to question the authority, the authority of the government. I think we have a right as uh, citizens of this country to question the authority of our government. Uh, it's not wrong to do that. Uh, the, the workers out there, the Forest Service people, they're not bad people. They weren't. And they're not today. And, uh, you know, the person that came after Mr. Ramey, I'm not sure if he was the next one, but Glenn Gaines. That guy, uh, I, I work with his wife. Uh, she's my assistant, and I know him pretty well. And I know that he really cares about Bankhead. He cares about the woods, and he doesn't want to, you know, he would not be for, you know, continued destructive forestry practices out there. And, and I'm not sure, you know, how involved he was in all the issues and things going on, but I believe that, that he would tell you that his hands were tied a lot of times because... Uh, he was just doing what they told him to do. So, you know, and I think we had to, to go up higher above them people's heads. The uh, advertising for the Bankhead Monitor, and uh, we, they had hired a guy named Jerry Henry, another person that was there that, you know, I was not on any list, but, you know, he was the ad salesman. And he drove all the way up and down all these back roads all around Winston County all these little stores and things like that selling ads and to, to support the Bankhead Monitor. And I know he's probably got a ton of stories for you, but uh, we, when we began selling ads, uh, there was a time when some of the uh, people who were putting money into ads, maybe buying the half page and all that, began to want to uh, have more control over the content. Of the magazine, and I can remember being in a couple meetings back at the old Warrior Mountain Trading Post across the street in the old building, and all that, uh, and actually having people in there who were advertisers who were trying to convince Lamar, you know, about to uh, to take a side on some issue that was on their agenda, or to uh, and to uh, put a slant into an article, you know, that was to their benefit. Mm -hmm. And Lamar would not do it. He refused to do it, even though he 
even though he offended those people when he made them mad, then he, he was of the utmost integrity regarding the Bankhead Monster and, the, and what was going on the, uh, and this effort. He was, uh, his integrity was just awesome, and he didn't cave in just to, to make money to keep these advertisers. These are just, just ordinary people, and this is really not, this is a, do you remember the name of the, uh, the Native American lady that came down to Indian Team Hollow for, and they were having a, one of the sweat lodges and having a, some kind of a, a, a thing that was, they advertised, but anyway, there's some ceremonies that they were having, and Charles Kennedy had, uh, had a friend who was a Native American, and she was a, a, a diplomat a U.S. diplomat to some country, and she was a member of, I'm wanting to say it was the Council on World Religions, and just a very high-up person. And uh, so Charles uh, uh, wanted me to get her to Bobby Gillespie or get her out to Indian Team Hollow, and so the, the woman drove from out west to my house, and I, I lived in this little house trailer, and she came in my house, and... Uh, and she ate a meal with us, and this is like a diplomat, and ate a meal with us, and she slept on my couch for seven hours. And then I got up and I got her out to Bobby, who got her on out to Indian Team Hollow. But it was that kind of humility. I mean, no one was, uh, no one in that effort was uh, thought more of themselves. Everyone considered themselves to be equal or to be lower than everyone else in that effort. And to me, that's, uh, that's an example of what I think is the essence of the eco-warriors. But just the fact that that lady, I will never forget it because she came in, she ate our food, and, and she probably, you know, made, what, a really good salary? You know, how much does a diplomat make, you know, and all that? And, you know, she drove in and, and all that, and she came in there, and she was just so cordial and just so friendly, and she just and wouldn't even sleep on the bed. You know, she insisted on sleeping on the couch. Very humble. I was trying to think of who is larger than life. You know, of all the eco-warriors, of all these key players in this, who was larger than life? And when I got to thinking about it, it was really no one. No one was larger than life. They, they were just people that really cared and, and who really felt grieved because of what was going on out there, grieved enough to take a stand. My wife and I, we stay out in the woods as much as we can. We're out there all the time. We tell all our friends. We post all our pictures on Facebook. We have a blog. It's kind of a, it's like a Christian blog. I'm a weird, non-traditional Christian. I can tell you that I'm a very dedicated Christian, but I'm so non-traditional that no church I mean, I don't fit in with any church. I mean, you go to church. they'd kick me out like in you know, two days or whatever. But we have a blog called footprintsonthetrail.com. And so we do, uh, and, and, and our, what the, the content of the blog is, uh, it's about our relationship, but it's about how going out hiking together and spending time together in the woods, how it teaches us how to have a relationship as a husband and wife. It's, it's very, it's, I know that's a weird thing too, but it's very, you know, I think that uh, we have an awesome relationship and I think that it's, it's so connected and tied in to what we do together when we go out there in the woods. And so what's your advice for young people? Well, I have some advice for young people, I think, in, in the, I don't want to try to read this, but I really thought a lot about this. And so I, I think young people need to get out there and get to know what's out there. Learn about the wild places. I think that if uh, young people listen, then the woods will, will speak to them. It'll, it, uh, it will make a change in their hearts if they go out there and they take time to listen and look. I think that young people can learn a lot by seeing the contrast between uh, what has and has not been tampered with. There's a big difference in going out to the Sipsy Wilderness and going to Clear Creek. 
campground. A huge difference. And, uh, and I think that the, everybody needs to go out and see that contrast. I think that we need to talk about it. Uh, tell their friends about it. Take their friends out there too. Be a patron, not just politically or, donat or through donations, but be a, a patron by becoming part of of the lovers of the forest, you know, and, and uh, I see people on people's Facebook, you know, like I'm a tree hugger and stuff like that. Try being a tree hugger sometime because, you know, that's that's not a bad thing. There's a lot of, there's peace and contentment in that. Uh, I think that today that uh, young people have every reason to be disillusioned. They have every reason to be angry. When I was a young, young man, uh, I had hoped that when I got out of high school, I didn't even have to go to college. You know, you'd probably get a job at the factory when you got out of high school. Uh, but I had the hope that I could get a job. Uh, I was like a kind of a hippie type person, and I really believed in uh, the peace movement. I believed that uh, that that someday we could learn how to live together in peace, and we could learn how to love each other. And it just didn't seem to happen like that. And so. Uh, we were hopeful, but then the generation or two after me, those people were, uh, they were reckless. They, uh, I remember uh, as a musician, a generation or two, when I was getting a little older, the young people were doing reckless things, like uh, things that were dangerous and would get you killed and stuff, like getting drunk and driving 100 miles an hour or going up and seeing if you could uh, swim in the water tower or you know, whatever, you know, this, people seem reckless, but then the reckless nature of the generations to me seemed to turn into anger, and people were angry, and why not be angry? Like, what is there to look forward to? You know, our environment, you know, is, is uh, hopefully getting better, but uh, we have environmental concerns, we have problems with uh, people getting jobs, even having a college educa education does not guarantee you a job anymore. Uh, relationships, uh, uh, everything going to over to social media and relationships are online now and they're not person to person anymore. And just all these things have, have changed and it seems to, like to me that it would be, that it's so easy to become disillusioned when you're young and you're trying to uh, look ahead to see what your future might be. And uh, so I understand that. But there is hope for a good life. And I think that uh, that, that hope, uh, part, of, part of, uh, of that hope becoming a reality of something good in the future, that saving the wild places is a huge part of it, a big part of it. I think that, is, that if we... If we keep on trusting technology, and then uh, someday we're going to be just what we see or read about in science fiction books a long time ago. And, you know, I think we're going to be weak, and we're going to rely on technology to survive, and we're, you know, our bodies are going to be weak, our minds. Think about it now. I mean, like, uh, you know, calculators are a good thing. But, uh, you know, who has to know math anymore? You know, to really know math. Uh, who, how many people, young people, do you know now that uh, would read a, a whole book, you know, a thousand-page book or something like that? You know, I get, you know, I'm sure there's some readers and all, but we're, uh, I know that my, my stepkids, for instance, they're used to 30-second sound bites or something that's no more than a minute or... They want to watch the movie. They don't want to read the book. You know, like if you read the book, you you got to use your imagination to to build that world, and you know you make that world, and it's and that's something that you're you're creating, and that's really uh, it's it's uh, improving your thinking skills and doing a lot of good things for your brain to be able to use your imagination that way. We don't have to do it anymore. Somebody puts it in a movie, and they interpret the whole thing for us, and you just watch the movie. You don't have to read the book. Uh, I think it's the same thing going out in the woods as, as it is reading, actually reading a book, the same thing. So my, my advice to people is to get out there, be part of it, see what it's about. Uh, 
to spend time in the woods, uh, let let what's out there that is greater than any human being is let that whatever that is that's out there begin the healing process. I think there's healing in the woods and healing in the wild places. Uh, healing of all kinds. Healing for the body and in particular healing for the mind. and uh, You know, the getting rid of stress. Understanding that uh, there's a unity with everything, that everything that's living, that's alive, that we're related to it together. And that we're all in this together. We're in. We're all in it. We're in it with the bees, and we're in it with the ants, and we're in it with the trees. Thanks to cellist Craig Hultgren for our theme music. Thanks to Janice Barrett of Wild South for assistance with this episode. Thanks to Farron Weeks and the White Horse Singers for the episode music. Please check out the episode support notes and learn more about Larry Smith at greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please subscribe, follow, and rate our show. Share it with your friends. And remember... We can change the world. Until next time.